Last week, we worked through the entirety of John chapter 9, and we discovered the extraordinary faith of the man born blind. He had never seen Jesus, but when he heard the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, he believed. In faith, he stumbled into the pool of Siloam to receive his sight. In faith, he passed through several hostile interrogations by the Jews seeking to cast him out of the synagogue. And in faith, he discovered Jesus' true identity. John 9 and verse 32 records one of the most remarkable theological insights in the entire New Testament. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God... He could do nothing. The Old Testament tells us that God, Yahweh, opens blind eyes. And yet in the entire Old Testament, you never see this miracle. So the man figured it out. God has come among us. The Messiah has come. Now, originally I planned to move right into chapter 10 this week. But John 9 left me with a concern concern that comes around quite frequently. What happens when you preach on someone's extraordinary faith? Well, inevitably, some Christians will begin to question their own faith. Your faith can feel small and insignificant compared to the blind man. And when you start comparing your faith to others, what follows? Doubt. Doubt follows. Some of you have wrestled with doubt for many, many years. And in fact, a sermon like last Sunday's could actually inflame those doubts. Doubt is far and away the most common issue that I have dealt with in ministry. And I may be biased a little bit because I deal with a lot of young people, college-age people, but it is the number one thing that I deal with. And that's part of the reason why I ended last week's sermon by turning to the Apostle Thomas. Thomas was unwilling to accept the testimony of eyewitnesses to the resurrection. When Jesus finally revealed himself to Thomas, he rebuked him. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Well, that's the blind man. But I wonder how many of us, truth be told can identify more with Thomas than with a man born blind. I suspect quite a few. And so this last week, as I was working ahead on John to pretend, I looked back through my sermons and realized it's been five years already. I couldn't believe it. Five years since I preached on the matter of doubt. But the Marsh Fant once told me, he says, you should preach on doubt probably once a year. Well, it's been since 2018 <laughs> So in light of our work in John 9, I thought, you know what, I just need to pause, take a week, and go back and look at this topic once more. And I do want to cover some similar ground that I covered back in 2018, but I do hope to go in a different direction. But I do want us to take a look at Peter this morning, and just a little bit of Thomas also, and contrast them with the blind man and with Paul. Let me begin this morning, as I did five years ago, by telling you the story of Larry. Larry was raised in Zionsville, Indiana. He enjoyed basketball. 
His father operated a grain elevator. Larry had one sister. Larry's mother scrimped and saved to keep the family clothed and fed. When times were difficult, she fashioned clothing out of empty grain sacks. Larry's father always talked about going fishing, but never had the time. Always had to work. Larry was unchurched. His father was a mason who lived with perpetual anger toward God because his own mother had been taken away from him when he was a young child. Working for farmers in a variety of jobs, Larry paid his way through Purdue University, earned a degree in aviation. It's then that war was raging in Vietnam, so Larry joined the army, served his country. And he returned, like many others, conflicted over the whole point of the war. Larry then began flying for United Airlines. He became upwardly mobile, living in Miami and then Chicago and flying the world. He met a flight attendant and started dating. He was 29 years old. His future looked promising. But the farm boy from Indiana was completely hollow on the inside. And that's when a man named Jim knocked on his door and invited him to go to church. And Larry went. And he recognized almost instantly that the gospel could somehow just fill in that hollow life. And so he put his faith in Jesus Christ, and his life was dramatically changed. Of course, he never saw a blinding light out of heaven, but his conversion felt like Paul on the road to Damascus. That is, it was abrupt. His conversion, like the blind man in John 9, was very quick. It's like, oh, that's what I've been missing. I want it. Now, you've probably guessed that Larry is my father. And some of you have had a similar experience to my father, particularly those of you who came to Christ as adults. Many of you can actually identify with this kind of abrupt coming to Christ. John Calvin, who came to Christ in his university days, wrote, and I quote, God, by a sudden conversion, suddenly subdued, and brought my mind to a teachable frame. He was converted. But many of you cannot quite relate to that. Maybe even most of you, I don't know. But if so, my message is really for you. I have four siblings, and we are all believers. But none of us have a testimony similar to my dad's. Do you know why? My dad. He's the reason, right? I was taught the Bible from the crib. I attended a Christian school. Our earliest memories involve attending a church. As I think back, I do not know what it's like to hear the gospel for the first time. As an intellectually mature 29-year-old, for sure, with lots of life experiences, I, I don't have that memory. You know why? I can't recall when I heard the gospel for the first time. Actually, I have no memory of not hearing the gospel. I mean, I just grew up with it. 
I don't remember not being taught the gospel. So my conversion does not feel like Saul on the road to Damascus. My own conversion does not feel like the blind man who just suddenly discovers Christ and latches on. I actually understand Thomas, and I can identify with Peter. So let me ask you a question. When was Peter converted? When were the other apostles converted? It's an intriguing question, is it not? Well, let's see if we can figure this out by turning back to John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, we first met Peter. John the Baptist has been out preaching, and he sees Jesus, and he declares him to be the Lamb of God. Now, John the Baptist had a couple disciples. And when he identified Jesus as the Lamb of God, those disciples went and followed Jesus. One of them was named Andrew. And Andrew immediately went off to find his brother, Peter, or Simon. We read of that encounter in verse 40. One of the two who had heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Well, again, this is Peter's first recorded encounter with Jesus. And apparently, he and his brother were looking for the Messiah. And Jesus instantly gives him a nickname. Because apparently, Jesus has a great future in mind for Peter. So, is this Peter's Damascus Road moment? Well, skip ahead to John chapter 2. Jesus spontaneously transforms water into wine. And notice what John says at the end of verse 11. His disciples believed in him. Now, we can't be certain that Peter was with Jesus on this occasion, but Jesus hasn't called his other disciples yet, many of them, so more than likely he is. So assuming that this is a reference to Peter, is Peter, a true believer. Well, now turn to chapter 4 of the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4. And here we're going to find Jesus, later than John chapter 2, up north in Galilee. Jesus' early Judean ministry, which is recorded in John's gospel, is now behind us. Jesus is walking along the shoreline, and he encounters two brothers, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and they are casting their net out into the sea. And verses 19 and 20 of Matthew 4 tell us, and he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishes of men. And notice the next word, immediately, 
They left their nets and followed him. Of course, they knew Jesus already, but immediately they followed him. And this is the beginning of that permanent discipleship relationship that Jesus has with Peter. From now on, he is a permanent disciple. So, is this Peter's conversion moment? He left it all, he followed Jesus. Jesus now traverses Galilee. He preaches the kingdom of God. He performs extraordinary miracles. He picks up new disciples. In both Mark 3 and Luke 6, we are told that Jesus prayed all night long up on a mountain. And then he made his final selection of 12 apostles. And guess who tops the list in both accounts? Simon Peter. So Simon Peter must be a true believer, right? Well, now turn to Matthew 10. And here we read of a similar commissioning of the twelve. Peter and the others are empowered to work miracles and to cast out demons. And notice again the first man on the list, verse 1, Matthew chapter 10 And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter. And look down at verses 7 and 8. Here's the commission. Proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's their message. Same message John preached, same message Jesus preached. You go out and you preach my same message. Not only that, verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Friends, raise the dead, cast out demons? Wouldn't you suspect that Peter must be a genuine believer if he's doing that? I would. But wait just a moment. Look who else is named at the end of verse 4. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, apparently, you can be a disciple without being a true believer. And now turn to Matthew 14. Jesus walks on water. And Peter attempts to do the same. And of course, we all know that Peter begins to sink beneath the waves. But let's remember three things. First of all, he was the only one crazy enough to get out of the boat and attempt to walk on water. Now, that's extraordinary. Number two, Jesus actually speaks of his faith, not just his doubt. Verse 31. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, little faith, why did you doubt? And we're going to come back to this statement later on. But Jesus acknowledges there's faith there. And then thirdly, notice the outcome, verse 33, And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Well, Peter got back in that boat. And he recognized Jesus to be none other than the Son of God. So he's got to be a believer, right? 
Well, now turn to Matthew 16. Jesus has continued preaching His kingdom all through Galilee. He has performed extraordinary miracles. He has made claims that only God could make. And now Jesus puts a summary question to His disciples. It's in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Like, who am I? And that question summarizes the whole trajectory of the first half of Matthew's gospel. It's all about Jesus' identity. So verse 14, and they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Remember the blind man last week? He recognized that Jesus was a prophet. And then he went well beyond that. Well, verse 15 He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Just another prophet? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of a living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. There's the nickname again. You knew it was going to become important. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Well, look at this extraordinary passage and let's notice four things about his confession. Number one, Peter clearly distinguishes Jesus from all the other prophets. That's exactly what happened to the blind man last week. Oh, he's got to be at least a prophet. No, this man is from God. Peter concluded the same thing. Second, Peter recognizes Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the very Son of God. You are the Christ. The confession is very clear. And thirdly, would you notice that Peter's, Peter's confession in verse 17 was given to him directly by the Father in heaven. What, what if Jesus told you God the Father puts your confession right in your lips. I mean, you've got, you got two members of the Godhead affirming your confession. Talk about assurance. And fourthly, Jesus accepts Peter's confession and entrusts him with enormous responsibilities. So, at long last, is this that Damascus Road moment for Peter? Well, this is the fulcrum point in Jesus' ministry. He has established his true identity. However, he has yet to speak clearly of his death and resurrection, but all that is about to change. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And how does Peter respond to that news? Verse 22, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now, don't be too swift to condemn Peter as if you would have known any better. Doubtless, Peter's rebuke stemmed from his faith that Jesus was God, and God cannot die, right? 
The Old Testament spoke of the suffering servant and the reigning king, but it did not connect those people as one and the same. Jesus has claimed to be the Son of Man. Who do you say the Son of Man is? And Daniel 7 says the Son of Man will rule the nations. It doesn't say he goes to a cross. Zechariah 9 claimed the king would come to Jerusalem on a donkey and rule the nations, but likewise says nothing of the cross. Psalm 22 alludes to Christ's death on the cross, but it uses the pronouns my and me, and who is that? Is that the Son of Man? Is that the Messiah? Well, who would have guessed? So again, don't, don't be too quick to beat up on Peter. Don't assume that you would have answered any differently. But look at the outcome, verse 23. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are an obstacle to the gospel. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Friends, could there possibly be a harsher rebuke? Can you think of a harsher rebuke that anyone, anywhere could give to anyone at any time? You are Satan. Well, is Peter a true believer? Well, how can a true believer just resist Jesus' plan to go to his cross? That's confusing, isn't it? But don't forget about verse 17. Jesus said, Peter, my father gave you your confession. What do you make of all this, right? Let's follow Peter down the road from Caesarea Philippi with Jesus and his disciples all the way down to Jerusalem. Jesus goes to Capernaum. Mark tells us he sat down in a house and looked at his disciples and said, what were you discussing on the way? And they were all embarrassed because they had been bickering over who would be greatest in the kingdom. At Capernaum, Peter piously asked Jesus, how often shall I forgive my brother? Seven times? And it becomes apparent Peter understands nothing of true gospel forgiveness. Jesus sets out for Jerusalem, and in Matthew 19, the disciples turn little children away from Christ. Don't bother him. Go away. But here comes this rich young ruler with all of his law-keeping, and the disciples are enthralled by him. However, Jesus is enthralled by little children and takes that rich young ruler and turns him away. Isn't that confusing? Jesus' point is, you all don't get it. Jesus comes to Samaria, and there he rebukes the disciples for the callous attitude toward the Samaritans, and they don't understand this is a gospel for all people. The Samaritans? No way! Jesus comes to Perea. James and John, together with their mother, hatch a scheme to have themselves promoted to the positions of highest honor in the kingdom, the right hand and the left hand. But the other disciples, including Peter, quote, were moved with indignation against the two brothers. No way, that position belongs to me, not you, James, not John. We deserve the highest positions, say the other apostles. So Jesus comes to Bethany. And here a woman named Mary breaks a costly vial of perfume and anoints the feet of Jesus. And the disciples are angry over this extravagant waste. The road down to Jerusalem exposes the disciples as bigoted, 
quarrelsome, petulant, self-seeking followers of Jesus? Like, what is their problem? Let's turn ahead now to John chapter 13. I didn't realize that Joseph was going to read from John chapter 13 this morning, but let's just take this as of the Lord. Jesus arrives in the upper room. It is time to give the disciples a lesson in servanthood. And he stoops down and he washes their feet. And does Peter understand? No. He says, you shall never wash my feet. You know what else happened that same night? John doesn't tell us, but the old dispute erupted once more among the disciples over who would be greatest in the kingdom. The final night, before he goes to his cross, they're arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And in the aftermath of that dispute, when you harmonize the Gospels, Peter, like your pesky little sibling, maneuvers to get the last word in. He claims he's totally committed to Jesus. In fact, he is ready to lay down his life for Jesus. Look at verse 37. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Now that is an immensely important declaration because back in Matthew 16, after Peter made his great declaration, right after that confession, Jesus told his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. Right? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay, take up your cross, follow me. So Peter is ready to take up his cross and lay down his life for Jesus. He's got it all put together, right? Well, verse 38, Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And that's going to happen later that night. So is Peter a true believer? It is rather confusing, isn't it? Jesus makes his way to the Garden of Gethsemane where Peter and the others promptly fall asleep. Jesus asked Peter bluntly, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? And the three betrayals follow him. So is Peter a true believer? And the narrative running up to Matthew 16 suggests that, yes, truly, Peter is a believer. But from Matthew 16 all the way down to the cross, you begin to wonder, is he a true believer at all? Well, what happens at the resurrection? Well, for one thing, we learned last week that Peter is not the only disciple with issues. They've all got some issues. Remember Thomas? He was one of the chosen twelve. He heard Jesus predict his resurrection three recorded times. He saw Jesus resurrect people from the grave. He was actually given power to perform miracles, including resurrection miracles. But Thomas refuses to believe. Here's the blind man who's never seen Jesus. He believes. Here's Thomas with all the evidence. I will not believe. Well, surely after the resurrection... The disciples finally get it all figured out, even Thomas himself. Or so you'd like to think. In Acts, we find Peter preaching Christ's death and his resurrection with Pentecostal power. In fact, in two sermons, he sees some 8,000 converts. 
But Peter, of course, is still freighted with cultural baggage, and it proves to be an obstacle to the advance of the gospel. The episode with Cornelius bears this out. The Gentiles are going to get this gospel? And in Galatians, Paul tells us he had to rebuke Peter to his face for siding with the circumcision party, the party that added work to the gospel. Peter, what are you doing? So, even after the resurrection, Peter fails to fully live out the reality of the gospel. So, again, here's my question. Where where exactly is Peter's Damascus Road moment? As far as I'm concerned, I, I don't think there is one. I can't find it. Well, then, maybe, maybe Paul's conversion isn't normative for everyone else. Maybe we don't all come to Christ in the same way. And maybe we need to be very careful about trying to force our testimony, right, into a Damascus Road mold. And that can happen a lot of times with Christians. I've got, I got to force my testimony and make it sound like what happened to Paul there. I've got to force my testimony into the mold of the man born blind. It's got to, it's got to sound just like that. And when it doesn't, you begin to doubt. Well, maybe we should take a lesson from Thomas or take a lesson from Peter. So let's try to really make some application of this in a way that I think can really, really be helpful. Because this, again, is an issue that believers face all the time. Now, let me make a quick clarification. The Bible teaches the doctrine of conversion. Conversion occurs when people repent of their sin when they change their mind and they turn to God in faith. The Bible repeatedly warns the unbeliever to repent. Repent and believe. It's called conversion. And repentance is what happens on the human side of salvation. On the divine side, God regenerates the sinner. That sinner actually is dead in trespasses and sin, and God spontaneously gives him new life. He is born again. So don't anyone misconstrue what I'm saying as some sort of denial of conversion. The Bible teaches conversion, but I want you to consider two points of application. First of all, some believers, like my father, can point to a rather dramatic conversion moment. When you read of Paul on the road to Damascus, his conversion story sounds like a pretty definitive moment, right? Although, even with Paul, it's a little difficult to arrive at that laser-sharp moment. Was Paul actually converted on the road to Damascus or three days later when he met Ananias? It's actually a little bit difficult to tell. It was only later that the scales fell from his eye and he was filled with the Spirit. So maybe that was the moment. You see, Even those dramatic moments, here's the point, tend to get stretched out a little in real time. The blind man in John 9 is another example. Did he become a believer when he first obeyed? When Jesus touched his eyes, remember nothing happened. Jesus said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Well, when he obeyed and went and washed, is that the moment when he was converted? 
Surely he had faith because Jesus later acknowledged that faith. At the same time, through those interrogations, he said, well, it's a sinner or not, I don't even know. So when exactly did the man convert? Was it when he first went to the Pool of Siloam or was it later when Jesus showed up and he said, I believe? Again, those, those conversion moments in time actually get a little stretched out, even the dramatic ones. So indeed, we can point to conversion moments, but I don't know that there's really any merit in trying to, trying to pinpoint it, like, like, a, like a coach with a stopwatch, you know, like right now, okay? We, we want to do that, but maybe there's not a whole lot of merit in that. And that leads me to number two. Many believers actually can't state the precise moment of their conversion. And I think that's why the Lord gives us stories of other believers like Peter and like Thomas that help us out a little bit. In the case of people who grew up in Christian homes like me, they were introduced to Christianity over several years. And those types of people typically do not have the experience of a 30-year-old or a 40-year-old hearing the gospel just for the first time and suddenly discovering, oh, this is what I've been missing my entire life. It doesn't work that way for you because you don't have 30 years of life experiences behind you. I mean, you're a kid. You don't remember not hearing the gospel. So what, what does the five-year-old do when he turns seven and then 10 and then 14 and then 21? You know what happens? You ask better questions. You ask better questions because you're trying to learn more. But questions imply doubt. And doubt implies disbelief, or so we think. Well, disbelief means, well, we never really believed the gospel in the first place. And so we get saved all over again, 17 times as we grow up, right? Over and over and over again. And then it gets really confusing. But friends, if I understand the gospel better today than I did a decade ago, does that mean that I wasn't a genuine believer a decade ago? I hope not, because I'm still learning more about the gospel today, and I'm 45. Actually, shouldn't we be constantly seeking to understand the gospel better? That's what happened with Peter. In other words, don't, don't misinterpret growing faith as an indication of previous disbelief. Don't misinterpret growing faith as an indication of previous disbelief. If my faith in the gospel is larger today than when I was 10, that doesn't imply that I had no faith as a 10-year-old. For many people, their salvation experience feels a little more like Peter. Three steps forward, two steps backwards. You know that experience? But here's the truth. When, When Peter's story intersected with the story of Jesus of Nazareth, there is turbulence that erupts like colliding jet streams. It's rough. But by the grace of God, when those stories intersect, they can never be pulled apart. But friends, that's not because Peter was blessed with some sort of robust faith from the moment he first met Jesus. Rather, it's because Jesus of Nazareth determined that he would never let Peter go. And that's where the security comes in. So yes, conversion happens in a moment in time, but not everyone can point to that exact moment. The Bible does not always turn the spotlight on that moment 
like it does with Paul with a blinding light out of heaven. Think of that spotlight, you know, think of a light shining on Paul. Look at that. Look at what happened to that guy, right? Did that happen to me? Actually, here's what the Bible does. It takes that spotlight and it turns it on Jesus. He is the object of the believer's faith. When life intersects, when his life intersects with yours, he is not going to let you go despite all of your litany of doubts and misgivings. And when you read the Gospels, don't you get the sense that that Peter is just truly in the grip of Jesus of Nazareth, in the grip of a loving God who is not going to let him go? Jesus nicknamed him Simon Peter for a reason. From the moment that he saw him, like, you're mine. And as the story of Jesus of Nazareth begins to transform us and to reorient our lives and to change our values, our our passions, our relationships, the whole direction of our life can sometimes feel like it's three steps forward and two steps backwards. Doubts come, misgivings come, uncertainty comes. That's, That's normal for many, many believers. And I, for one, cannot say precisely when that moment of conversion came. I had many setbacks and the process of just really embracing the story of Jesus. But friends, my faith today is not in a date that I wrote down in my Bible as if I could spontaneously just produce faith at 10.30 a.m. on February 5th, 2023. Like, watch me, here I go, boom, there's my faith. Write it down. Actually, my faith does not rest in my ability to express a formula of words to persuade God to save me, right? I said these words. I prayed the right words. I made sure it was really theological. And because of that, I persuaded God to save me. My faith does not rest in my first step toward the altar. Actually, are you ready for this? My faith is not in my ability to suspend all doubt. My faith is not in my ability to suspend all doubt. If it were, I would have given up a long time ago. Friends, where is my faith? My faith is in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. That's where my faith is. And He has so empowered me to believe on Him that I keep on believing even when I'm doubting. And if that strikes you as odd, would you turn back to Matthew chapter 14? And let's notice one more truth about the relationship between faith and doubt. Let's just drill down for just a moment on a statement that we passed over earlier. Jesus has reached out his hand to help a doubting Peter sinking beneath the waves. And notice again Jesus' response in verse 31. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Yes, Peter failed, but Jesus says Peter has faith. Granted, it's small But it is faith. Peter, you have a little faith. And Jesus no sooner acknowledges faith than he also acknowledges, yeah, you have doubt too. In other words, Jesus acknowledges that Peter's faith and his doubt exist simultaneously. That's the text, right? Oh, you have little faith. You have a little faith. And you've got doubt. They exist simultaneously. Now, I used to think that faith and doubt were just mutually exclusive. 
If you have 100% faith, there's no room for questions, right? No shadow of doubt, right, right. Actually, that's wrong. Friends, don't turn faith into a work. The Bible does not quantify faith as a prerequisite for salvation. The Bible does not say, well, when you get up to 95%, I mean, you're almost there. You get up to 99.9% and you're on the final threshold, right? And you get up to 100%, well, ding, 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 we've got a new believer now, right? It was all up to you all along. You did it. Congratulations. Well, you all know what happens the next morning. You're back down to 99.9. You're like, oh, wait a minute. What about this, right? Then you put your faith in your faith. Well, don't put your faith in your faith. Where do you put your faith? Put your faith in Christ, in Christ alone. Now, in this case, Peter had a little faith, and Jesus wanted to know, well, why are you doubting? And we see something very similar to that in Mark 9 and verse 24. Would you turn there? We'll do this very quickly. Mark 9 and verse 24. And we'll end here. Let's just confirm that faith and doubt are not mutually exclusive. Here in Mark 9, we find a father who has a young boy who is afflicted, and he brings him to the disciples, and they cannot cast out the demon. And the father comes to Jesus, and he wants to know if Jesus will heal his son. And Jesus said in verse 23, All things are possible for who? For one who believes. In other words... If you have faith, if you believe, I will heal your son. All right? So what does the man say? Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Isn't that interesting? The man recognizes that he does indeed have faith. And we know that Jesus recognized that faith. Because he healed the son. If you believe, it's possible. He healed the son. So Jesus recognized that faith. But at the same time, the man acknowledged that his belief was nagged by unbelief. Ever feel that way? Your belief is constantly nagged by unbelief. And do you want to know why that happens? Why does that happen? Here's the reason. It is because... Even as a believer, you still have that fleshly, sinful nature. Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 7. And you do not lose it until you die. And believe me, it is not in the nature of your flesh to trust God. It is not in the nature of your flesh to trust God. But you still have the flesh. There's an old man in there, and he's just crying out, don't believe that stuff. If the old self wants to draw you back into immorality, into dishonesty, into ingratitude, into anger, into malice, into covetousness, into all kinds of other sins, don't you suppose that old man wants to drag you right back down into disbelief? Of course he does. If the flesh comes back and wages war in your mind, it's certainly going to use its most potent weapon of disbelief. And sometimes you just need to tell that old man to shut up. I am not listening to you any longer. That flesh is the irredeemable part of you. Now, kids, you can't go home and say shut up to your siblings, all right? Actually, what Paul says is you have to kill that old man. You thought shut up was bad. You have to mortify that flesh. Kill it dead. 
The fact is, some of you will have a greater disposition toward doubt than others of you. That's just the nature of the church. And that means that whereas some of you are going to have to just constantly mortify your lust, okay, there's people like that out there. Some of you are going to have to mortify your dishonesty. You're you're prone to telling lies. You're going to have to mortify them. Some of you are going to have to mortify your despair. Well, some of you, it, it's, your, your, your sanctification battle is going to be daily mortification of that sin of disbelief. You just, you just have to go in there and you have to kill the old man. Just kill the old man. Friends, the text is very clear. Jesus accepts the faith of the man who says, I believe, help my unbelief, right? You know he accepted the faith because he healed the son. If you believe it's possible, he healed the son. The son of the guy who says, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help me mortify my disbelief. So friends, in conclusion, let's just be really, really precise. Notice how the Father here has put his faith, not in his faith, but in Jesus. That's the key, right? His faith is not in his faith. His faith is in Jesus the healer. And friends, that's what saving faith is all about. Whether you're Paul or Peter, whether you're the blind man or Thomas, whether you're sinking beneath the waves or coming to Jesus for healing, what what exactly is saving faith? It's not faith in your faith. It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Make Christ the object of your faith. And you may find that you've got that ten-finger grip on Jesus He's pulling you up out of the waves. And your grip begins to loosen. Those crashing waves come, those storms come. But friends, it's actually not your grip that matters. Jesus said in John 6 and verse 37, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast down. Your eternal destiny does not rest on your ability to hold on to Jesus. It rests on his ability to hold on to you.